0: Lord, if we are those who believe in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we've just sung, then we are meeting today in the presence of the Lord of the universe. We thank you that you are a communicating God, and we ask that you, as sovereign Lord, would teach us from your word this morning. Give me the grace to explain it and give us the wills to obey it. In Jesus' name, Amen. In uh, 1987, uh, Michael Douglas, son of Kirk Douglas, uh, starred in a movie called Wall Street. He played the character of Gordon Gecko, who famously in the uh, film said, Uh, at one point in a speech, greed is good. Last week, we heard news that Michael Douglas has just been appointed uh, into the office, the fraud office of the FBI in the States, in order to run uh, a program uh, trying to convey that greed is bad. It stood out in 1987 when he said greed is good because... Nearly everyone believes it isn't. And perhaps it's because everyone believes that greed isn't good that we don't actually preach much about it. The problem is that it's an irregular verb, isn't it? Um, I am hard-working. You are ambitious. He is greedy. Greed is something that other people are involved in. It's not something we ever think of applying to ourselves. It's it's always something about a movie character. It's extreme. It's 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 well out there. It's not something that we think we're involved with. But today's passage means we have to make a big deal of it. Today's passage tells us that there are those in Ephesus, where Timothy is working and to to, uh, to which Paul is writing. There are those who are greedy. They are deprived of the truth and they are depraved in their heart. And we can take it pretty much in that order. And the first section, verses 3 through to 5, most of that is this issue of being deprived of the truth. It's about what's wrong in their heads. A couple of times earlier in the letter, Paul has pointed to what the good news of Jesus is all about. He came to save sinners to rescue those who would otherwise have no rescuer from the fact that they fall short of God's goodness. He came to rescue you and me, to save you and me, and the people that are with Timothy in Ephesus. But there are those in Ephesus teaching that access to God is about what you know in your head, and about a lifestyle that seeks to impress God by your extreme disciplines in some area, like Uh, be a vegetarian, avoid meat, avoid sex, don't get married, and generally saying no to God's good creation. Instead of a simple message, you are a sinner, run to Jesus because he's coming back, they're fussing about words and rules, none of which will help at all. And that simple message is what Paul calls here in verse 3, the sound, it means healthy, instruction concerning Jesus Christ but they according to verse 4 have an unhealthy interest in quarrels and strife they've got this this envy which is a it, it, it's a it's a very descriptive word it it means the aching of your heart for something that someone else has these people presuming to teach actually themselves understand nothing paul says They're conceited, and even that in itself should alert any hearer to the gap between what they're teaching and who Jesus is. You really can't learn much about Jesus from someone who's themselves puffed up with pride. Somewhere along the way, it's like they've been robbed of the truth, verse 5. They've at some point known the truth, but something has taken the truth from them. And what's that something? It's greed. They've become those who think they can turn the the message that they're speaking into a nice little earner. They, to use Paul's words, they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. They've allowed their hearts to be robbed of what does matter and have started hunting for what doesn't. They've lost the truth because of greed. They've lost the truth, they're deprived of truth. Then uh, the next section from verse 6, they're depraved, corrupt in their heart. The the letter, the whole letter opens with a verse about God our Saviour and Christ Jesus our hope. And there's an underlying uh, return every now and then in this letter to that message about hope and the future. There's a clear pattern described in the letter. Life now is going to be a struggle, but Jesus will return in judgment, and life after that will be glory. They've neglected that pattern, these false teachers. They've tried to get in this life now what God has determined will be available only then, so they've become super spiritual. That's their excuse for avoiding meat and marriage, because that's not what the life of heaven is supposed to be about. And Paul says, no, uh, that's completely irrelevant. What We live in earth. This creation of God is good, so get stuck in. At the same time, they've tried to live an abundance in some way by their money that actually will be an abundance that God delivers in the future. Godliness, then, is great gain. They've got that bit right. Godliness is great gain. But, says St. Paul in verse 6, only provided it comes attached to this thing, contentment. Being content comes from recognising that there is a life beyond this one. We brought nothing into this world and we'll take nothing out when death or judgement comes. So don't get worked up about money. It can form no part of our hope in the future, in Jesus. They're focused on now. They've lost any focus on then. They've lost any focus on eternal realities. And, of course, that's actually only to be expected. It was Jesus, after all, who says, you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon in in his mouth and in those days being a kind of principle behind money. Jesus himself recognized that the great rival to the true worship of the true God Uh, is always going to be from uh, something that has an appeal in this world only. The most now of desirables. When greed comes in, then desire for the true God goes out. Hearts are depraved, and minds are deprived. The consequences are there in verse 9. Once you start with wanting to get rich, then you face temptation, then you face a trap, and then you face destruction. Again, that end note coming in to what Paul is writing. Nothing but destruction awaits in the end those who ache to have more. In verse 10, we hear that they begin by wandering, but they end up pierced with many griefs. In this world, and I guess with a language of destruction beyond it too. Perhaps you've heard verse 10 before. You've perhaps heard people say, money is the root of all evil. And perhaps if you know your Bibles, you've uh, been clever enough to come back and say, well, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which is how it's translated here. Yes, it is. But it is very strong. It's as though Paul is saying, All the kinds of evil that you will find have at their root this love of this worldly power that money can get you. And that's really all there is to it, to that um, biblical passage. Um, It's not rocket science, this stuff. Don't be greedy, don't get God mixed up with your greed. But then the question kind of has to be asked, because of where I started, let's not be greedy. Well, we don't think we're greedy anyway. So where's this going to have traction in our lives? If you think of bits of, uh, two bits of Velcro, um, if this passage is one piece of Velcro, where's it going to grab onto the lives that we live? And so reasonably enough, I want to... uh, head into that bit by talking about Ikea. (laughs) Uh, I was on a trip up north uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I don't know if you know Ikea, uh, the store, um, but although they allow uh, shortcuts through it, uh, their real ambition is to take you on a labyrinthine walk through the entire warehouse so that you see things you didn't actually go in for. And at one point... um, Uh, Actually, it was at one point when I'd made a really bad mistake and I was trying to go against the flow, which is a really bad move in Ikea. But anyway, um, I went into their wardrobe section and I was reminded that my wardrobe is falling to bits at home. If I open one door, the other one swings wide for no no apparent reason and bits long ago fell off the sort of skirting at the bottom. Now, I, I I have read this passage quite a few times this week. I get it that I'm not supposed to be greedy. I'm supposed to be content. And specifically, I'm supposed to be content with food and clothing. But in what way content? Okay, Paul, um, I can have food and clothing, but can I have a a new piece of kit to put my clothing in? Is that allowed? Can I go and get a new wardrobe? Well, of course it's a stupid question... But it's that kind of stupid question that we actually do ask that gets in the way of our doing anything with this sort of passage. Food and clothing. Ah, yes, yes. But what about holidays? What about insurance? What about computers? What about books? Are we allowed those things? Well, of course, we we don't get the rules uh, in this passage. And we would love it if the rules were there. And, you know, sort of every, I don't know, every sort of ten years, someone went and updated them so, so as to allow for computers or mobile phones or whatever. But we don't get that. And so the lives that we actually live, do they in any way resemble lives that are content with food and clothing? I haven't got a clue. And it would be utter madness to spend time trying to apply these words according to whether or not you or I have food and clothing and something else that we quite like. What it does tell me, though, uh, when, I, when I go da- strip it down to these basics, is how much we tend, I tend to leave unattempted any radical consideration of money. We sang uh, earlier on The power of your cross releases us to worship. I wrote it down because that was such a great line. But of course that's released. it's not about singing, it's to worship. And God wants, Jesus certainly spoke more about, a great deal more about our money than he did about our music. We leave unattempted any radical thinking about money. We've got, uh, Natalie and I have got friends who this weekend uh, have gone away with, I think, six or seven other couples. The, they've got 18 children between them, and uh, they've gone away to consider whether to adopt a kind of Christian community lifestyle, because enough of them are thinking through radically what it means to have stuff in the world and what to do with it. And uh, my, I'm not sure it's that my idea of a good time to be away with 18 small children, but I commend them for taking seriously the mandate of Christ. Some of us gathered here will have very clear personal policies that we've adopted. We will have become clear over time. We'll have taken decisions about what food and clothing, yes, and books and computers and Ikea wardrobes mean for us. But some of us will be in debt because we've never had that kind of policy. Or we never thought that it, it, it was involved in walking in the steps of Jesus. Some of us have always intended to do something, but never quite got round to it. Contentment is a very odd virtue, isn't it? There's a church in uh, Norwich that does great things called Eternity. There's a a conference, uh, a festival, going on uh, this coming summer, and the title of that is Unleashed. No one is going to book for a conference called Eternity contentment. No one is going to uh, attend, to kind of go to a church where the great banner across the road is content. It's not going to happen. It's an odd virtue. It's a quiet virtue, and there's a lot of these quiet virtues in 1 Timothy. It's not flashy, but it's able to make a difference in the world. Consider uh, Sir John Lang, Uh, He died in the 70s. Uh, He'd made squillions from the building firm that he established. They put up Canterbury Cathedral. They put up Barclay uh, Nuclear Power Station. Uh, uh, He gave away... He he became Christian at the age of seven, and he gave away, in his lifetime, uh, millions of what he had. Uh, At one point, he set set up uh, a mission fund uh, to proclaim the name of Christ and he gave 40% of all that he had to do that. He died with £371 to his name. He believed in that Wesleyan model of make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. wasn't flashy, but he made a difference in the world. And perhaps Lent can help if we try to apply all this. Whatever we take contentment to mean there's going to be some kind of discipline attached to it. A discipline, meaning that we, we choose to follow the way of the cross, behaving in a particular way, to echo what Jesus does, sacrificing himself, being the master of his own uh, fate and destiny and life and body and spirit in order to bring blessing uh, to others. And so, if I say, what does a discipline of contentment look like? And I'm just going to name some things. I'd encourage you to say, to recognize, this is all worship. First of all, consider how you make money. That's part of your worship. How do you make money? Are you working hard? Are you making choices that, in a sense, when you get the opportunity of making more money with which to do good things, are you taking it? Because in most of the world, if you're not taking it, someone who isn't going to do such good stuff will take it. So are, are, you, are you exercising a discipline and a worship of making money? Secondly, are you then kind of mastering uh, your use of it? Uh, someone commented to me uh, this week that we don't say very much about fasting. We don't, um, but it therefore occurs to me in this particular context. Do, do we fast? whether it's from food or drink or or fast cars or any of those nice things that Nigel talked about at the beginning of the service? Do we discipline ourselves uh, in the regular use of the good creation that God has given in order that we may appreciate it more, but appreciate it in a way in which we we are its master, not its servant? Thirdly, praying. There is in this letter that sense of the day is coming. The end time is coming. And as someone once wrote, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So in the prayer that looks forward to recognizing that Jesus is coming back to a kingdom which will never be shaken, are we we using our prayer time to live in that world, as it were, such that we are then more disciplined with the stuff of this world? What about your spending? Um, I've got a a brother-in-law, married to Natalie's sister, who's who's a a, a New England Yankee, and he has a splendid uh, phrase. I I suppose it's deep in the Puritan heritage uh, of New England. Uh, Use it up, wear it out, make it do, or do without. (laughs) That's brilliant. Use it up wear it out, make it do, or do without. And if you say it with a kind of Yankee twang, it's even better. <laughs> do, you, do you plan every year, whatever, whether you're following a tax year or a calendar year or some other kind of year, who cares? But do you plan every year to raise your standard of giving more than your standard of living? And that takes us just finally after we think talked about making money and fasting and praying and spending, to the issue of giving. Uh, I'm not going to say uh, a great deal about the principles of giving. We'll be writing something to you all uh, a little later, uh, in a, f- a couple of weeks, I'm guessing. But I would just say those, these three words to remember about giving. Give proportionately, give regularly, and give efficiently. Efficiently, meaning make sure that uh, that nice... Uh, Chancellor gives us some of uh, your money back. But give regularly. Don't depend on whether there's a a, a box here, if that's uh, avoidable for you. Most of us have got bank accounts. Use them. Uh, And give proportionately. When you plan every year, make a plan. Stick with it. Budget. Who could believe that God might be interested in your budgeting It would be nice if we had a budget, come to think of it. But uh, uh, we ought to have, because God does care. It's part of our worship. Uh, This is true more in the evening, I have to say, than the morning. But I do tend to feel I see more people reaching into their pocket on a Sunday than I think uh, we should see. If we've got bank accounts, do please use them. Now, this week, uh, we've had the stick, really, of what we are not to be like. Next week, with Diana, as we finish the letter, we're going to find more of the carrot. But this today is what to avoid. It's not a complete program of how to live as a Christian. Next week, it gets balanced. This week, we've had lifestyle. Next week, we'll particularly, we'll have a bit more of the lifestyle, but we'll particularly talk about what we speak, how we present, how we engage in mission. But I want to finish just by commenting on this word godliness that comes throughout this letter, and it's come a number of times in our reading today. It's a a word that comes actually from uh, the the world of the religions around Ephesus uh, in the Greek world of the time. And it means an integrity of faith and behavior, which is a kind of seedbed for mission. It's a life of integrity, a lifestyle of integrity, a following of Jesus, such that when we speak of Jesus, there is credibility behind it. If you're John Lang, and you speak to someone on a train about Jesus, it helps that you know that you've lived it out with squillions uh, given away behind you. Consider, then, your mind... And its desire for truth. Consider your heart, and its desire for God Himself. I want to finish by uh, claiming that greed is good. Not greed, though, as Gordon Gecko meant it in Wall Street. Not greed for stuff, not greed for cars and treasure and uh, gold and silver. I want to be greedy for God. I want there to be that desire in my life, that hunger, that greed for God, so that godliness with contentment is is not something I'm striving for, as though it's another flat, heavy weight laid on my Christian life. But it comes out of a longing to serve this extraordinary God, who in Christ has given everything of himself for me. And that kind of greed has to be good. So yeah, I don't know which way you want to think of greed, but there is a greed that can be good. Let's, with our minds and our hearts, aim at that greed, not for gain, but for God. And then it'll be all right. Let's pray. I'm going to pray, and then Jess uh, will lead us in the rest of our prayers. Lord God, we hear the word discipline. And if we're honest, most of us inside just go, oh, I didn't come to church for that this morning. We didn't come to church to have a, a weight uh, put upon our lives, to hear of, of discipline, that maybe it would be good for us. But it's not why we came. We came because we want our... We want to want you. We want our desire for you, for the living God, our greed for you to be so strong that our disciplines flow easily and naturally. Whether it's in the making of money or our fasting from the things it brings us, whether it's in our our praying, our spending or our giving, Please lead us in the path of Jesus Christ himself, we pray, who knew the good things of this creation, but also knew how to use them wisely because nothing mattered in comparison with his desire for the living God. And as we go into prayer now, we ask that we may do so with hearts full of that desire. Yes, take us and use us in in the disciplines that have been mentioned, in the concerns that Paul addresses in this passage. But touch our minds with truth. Fire up our hearts with desire. So that it shall go well with us. And your purposes increase. Amen.